How do you stay entertained? With a tablet in one hand and a remote in the other, a consolidated communications internet and TV bundle puts all the entertainment at your fingertips. Ask us how to get TV service free for three months. With long-lasting discounts and a 30-day money-back guarantee, what do you have to lose? Limited time offer. Visit consolidated.com slash CCI bundle for details. Consolidated Communications, connecting you better. Services not available in all areas. Terms and conditions apply. It's time once again for another episode of Pro Advocate Radio, brought to you by My Advocate Center, broadcasting live from the Pro Business Channel studios in Atlanta. And now here's your host, Deb Beecham. Hello, everyone. This is Deb Beecham, co-host for Pro Advocate Radio and the founder and director of My Advocate Center, which sponsors Pro Advocate Radio. And it is a crisp, clear, beautiful day here in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, but while we're focusing a lot on Georgia, we also want to thank Global. The issues that we're here for today to discuss involve domestic violence and everything around domestic violence and different types of violence. And I'm just going to say real quickly, violence is a crime. It doesn't matter if it's in a family situation, a neighbor, a stranger. There's, there's lots of terms that will get thrown ar- around. So because it's October and October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, we wanted to do a special show featuring the experts in this arena in Atlanta, Georgia. And we're very um, blessed to have the leaders that we have here in our state focusing on these issues with some incredible programs and very aggressive policy work. And, um, you know, I've been at the Capitol myself and have been taking all this in for a few years and admire what you all are doing. So I'm going to introduce our guest. Um, First, we have Jennifer Waddell. Jennifer's returning to the studio for her second time. Uh, Jennifer Waddell is a certified um, coach practitioner and um, divorce coach, um, domestic violence advocate, and she's the associate director of My Advocate Center. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning. So, and we also have um, Jennifer Thomas with the Georgia Coalition on, no, sorry, the Commission on Family Violence. Yes, we have, (laughs) so we have the Commission and the Coalition. We have Jan Christensen with the Georgia Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And if you're in Georgia, or really, if you're a leader in any state around the country, you're going to know about the Georgia Coalition Against Domestic Violence. This is one of the powerhouse organizations in the country. Um, They raise the bar high for other domestic violence organizations. So it's a pleasure and an honor to have you here, Jan. And, And likewise, Jennifer, I've heard so many great things about you from advocates, attorneys, um, you know, the nonprofits that run the shelters and, you know, do the intake. They couldn't do what they do without the two of you and the information and support that you both provide. So, Jan, why don't we start with you? Sure. And why don't you tell us a little bit about the coalition? So the coalition is the federally recognized domestic violence experts for the state of Georgia. And what that means is that um, the federal government charges the coalition for training advocates um, that provide direct service to victims and for providing technical assistance to them, which means problem solving, and for um, partnering and collaborating with folks like the uh, commission um, to make sure that policies and laws are reflective of safety for victims, justice for victims, and batterer accountability. And so those are those are the kind of what we're charged to do. We also do a lot more. We administer the statewide hotline. Um, we um, have a fatality review project, which we partner with the commission on. And so we both have uh, fatality review coordinators and and um, and that report is something that is um, really one of the cornerstones of the of our work. Um, we also have a disabilities project, which focuses, focuses on the deaf and hard of hearing community, and we have a transitional housing project as well. That's a lot of work. It is a lot is, of work. Um, how big is the organization? Uh, we have nine employees. Okay. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I bet they all stay very busy. Yes. 
Very, yes. very busy. Yes. yes. And how many domestic violence organizations are there in the state? Do you know? Well, so our organization is a member-based organization, right. and we have 54 member programs, and um, some of them provide safe shelter, um, and some don't. Some are community-based organizations that provide um, help to victims, such as legal advocacy, crisis um, counseling, um, support groups, those kinds of things. Um, but there are 46 domestic violence, certified domestic violence shelters in Georgia, okay. which means that they are eligible to get state funding. Okay. So, um, and so we have a number of those that are our member programs. Most of those are our member programs. And then, um, a lot of other community-based organizations. So I'd like to just take a moment to encourage our listeners that if you are an advocate and wanting to get more involved and connected with different organizations, reach out to the Georgia Coalition, and I'm sure they can help kind of point you in the right direction in your area. Or you may want, you may have an organization that needs to become a member. Um, what is your website? www.gcadv.org. Okay, and I was looking on there yesterday. I, I linked some of your featured pages onto our, our page on Pro Advocate Radio. And right now, we're directing people to proadvocateradio.org to connect to listen live. And But all of our content after the show airs is hosted on proadvocateradio.com. That's the difference between the two websites. So the page where we have... Um, the information about today's show is a domestic violence awareness page. So if you're listening and you want to kind of see at one glance what we're talking about today, you can go to the domestic violence awareness page on proadvocateradio.com and you can link through to their websites. You can see the phone numbers. And if somebody's listening who, let's say somebody's at work and they're listening on their computer and, you know, or they're driving and they're listening and they're not sure, they think they need help, and they really just need to talk to somebody, what's the hotline number? Sure. The hotline number uh, for our state is 1-800-332836 or 1-800-33-HAVEN, H-A-V-E-N. And that will connect uh, an individual to the domestic violence program that's nearest to them. Okay. And do you have to be somebody who's been sent to the hospital with injury? Do you have to have black and br blue bruises? You do not. Anyone can call this 1-800 um, number. Um, I can remember as an advocate working in shelter, uh, there were many times I received calls from friends and family mm -hmm. who would call the hotline just to ask, how can I support my sister or how can I better support my friend who I think is in a violent relationship? Right, and that's a very touchy area. It's an, it's an uncertain time for, for the victim and for people around him or her, or t teenagers, and teen violence is another big subject. We'll, we'll make sure we get some time on that. Um, so that's great. Anybody can call the hotline number. There's no judgment. There's no shame. You get the information that you need, and then you help share that with the person who needs it. So, okay, thank you, Jan. And Jennifer, tell us about the commission. Sure, thank you. Um, the Commission on Family Violence is a state, uh, state agency that was created by the General Assembly to work to end family violence in the state of Georgia. Um, the commission has 37 members that are appointed by the governor, lieutenant governor, and speaker of the house. So it's a, a, a diverse membership of folks from across the state, including judges. There's one judge from each judicial district. We have a survivor that sits on the commission. So it's a diverse group of folks who are working to end and address family violence here in the state. And these are people who see it from all sides. That's correct. Because I'm sure the constituents are reaching out to their legislators and giving them examples of what's happening. And... When is um, Domestic Violence Day at the Capitol while we're on um, talking about legislators? Do it's we February 2nd. Okay. Yeah, so, so that is Stop Violence Against Women Day, which is a, a joint event between the coalition, um, the commission, the Georgia Network to End Sexual Assault, and um, some other folks as well. Yeah, so if you want to see what's going on at the policy level and you want to use your voice, and stand in line, talk to your legislators on the ropes there at the Capitol. It's a great learning experience, but the people that you meet and the support that you get 
as an advocate or as a survivor, it's pretty incredible. It, it is. So um, I encourage you to save the date for that in February 2016. So right now we're in October, and back to Domestic Violence Awareness Month. What are there any events or anything going on this month that people want to keep on their calendar? Well, um, on the coalition's website, www.dcadv.org, we have a link to some events that are happening across Georgia. And some of them are in Atlanta. Um, some of them are in um, other places throughout the state. And so we encourage people that if you have an event that is um, happening around domestic violence awareness or to honor um, victims, please uh, go to our website. They're listed um, on the website, and uh, you can you can join one of those events very very easily. Wonderful, very good. So, um, what, let's say if somebody's listening for a few minutes and they say, "I really don't, I don't get domestic violence," you know, but I'm I know it's a big problem. Help me understand. You know, if you were if let's say we're talking to a business owner, husband and wife team, they have employees. And they're starting to pick up on the idea that an employee is struggling with something at home and they're, maybe they're hiding their face, they're wearing long sleeves. Speak to that person who's observing something and trying to understand what this means. Sure. I'll, I'll just first start off by I think one of the, the most helpful things that someone who is concerned about a victim or is concerned about someone who they think might be a victim, um, I think the most uh, one of the most positive and reassuring things they can say to someone is that, um, you know, I don't really know what's happening in your life, but I know if someone's treating you badly or if someone's treating you poorly, that it's not your fault. Um, I think that's the most important thing that we should start with when we talk with victims. And that understanding that they best know the realities and experiences in their life, and it's not our place to tell them what they should do next. Right. Um, we have to trust them and walk with a victim and not tell them what to do. Um, and I think one of the most things that's really harmful is when we tell someone that they should just leave that relationship. Um, leaving, we can talk about that, is a very dangerous time for victims. In the fatality review project that we do with the coalition, most of the cases that we've reviewed over the last 11 years, the victim of homicide was in the process of leaving that relationship. So when we say to a victim that you should just leave, um, I think that puts her or him in a great deal of danger. And so trusting that they best know their lives and supporting them, not telling them what to do. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, telling a victim that she should just leave is um, really placing the onus on her to stop the abuse that she's not perpetrating. And so um, it really, in a way, is um, somewhat victim-blaming. And, um, and we really need to remember that the batterer needs to be held accountable for that. And he's actually the one that should leave, um, even though that's probably likely not going to happen. Um, what we need to do is say, what can I do to help you? Um, is, is there anything that you need? Are you safe? Um, you know, can I connect you with anybody? Uh, so, so we really need to be, be asking those questions of her and not saying, just leave. Right. And so if we lay out the... Um, so let's say an example. I talk a lot about case studies at my Advocate Center. So if you show somebody what it looks like, this is what a safe path out looks like. These are some of the tools that you need. This is a mindset that you need to you need to try to adopt because your mind is your worst enemy while this is going on because your abuser has told you if you leave what will happen. If you've if you've had that conversation and you know, you know this person will stop at nothing to keep you under their control. And I'm going to just say real quickly, I've met, a, I've met a handful of men over the years since I got divorced, and I, I didn't realize how hard it is for men to talk about the emotional abuse they experience, and some of them physical violence. And granted, they were, might have been bigger and stronger, but they're not the kind of guy who's going to strike a woman, even in self-defense. So men have a hard time talking about being victimized and the shame. And, you know, women, we're supposed to be um, more open <laughs> emotionally and softer to be able to explain what we need. It's just not that easy. It's mm -hmm. not simple. Um, 
and sometimes what's going on in your mind is so cluttered that you can't articulate what you need. Um, and that includes with law enforcement. So the training that you're doing with law enforcement, with all first responders, um, is critical. And that goes for in the hospitals and the doctor's offices. Um, you know, I've, I know I've been in the pediatrician's office before, and, you know, with HIPAA laws, it's, you know, they, you don't talk out in the hallway, but you can tell when a mother is basically saying, can I hand off my children to you for a few minutes because I'm not coping very well. So everybody from school staff, churches, the first responders, hospitals, if everyone is aware of what it's like for a domestic violence victim and what the resources are and what the safe path looks like and feels like, we can all, um, you know, I'm going to use a cheesy analogy, but if we're all linking arms and hands and circling somebody gently, kindly, with no judgment, and saying, you know what, this is possible. It's not easy, but it's worth protecting yourself. You are worth being protected. Your children are worth being protected. And something that a lot of people don't think about is the bond between parents and children when there's violence involved in the home, out of the home, if there's, if that imbalance is there between parents, one's fearful, one's controlling and vindictive and punitive, you can't have the kind of parenting going on that the children need and the children are experiencing the violence in the mother's eyes and her body language. Even if the child doesn't hear vicious language or doesn't see violence, they're still soaking it up and experiencing it. And you can see it in children's faces when you know that this is what they're experiencing. And I think this is why, you know, when I was growing up in Miami, I started volunteering at children's hospitals and, um, doing things with kindergarten classes and that that was just something you can see when a child is in that kind of environment so that's what drives me and when I use the hashtag needs of children it has a lot to do with what children experience and what they're not getting from their parents that they need so um, and of course we know the cycles of violence and addiction and mental health that when children are exposed to violence when they're abused and not protected when they ask for help and when they're not believed, they're very likely to repeat that either as a victim or as an abuser. So that's, you know, I think that drives a lot of people to get involved and do what we can now because we need to interrupt those cycles. So apologize for, <laughs> you're the experts. I want to hear from you more, but um, this, is a, this is a big deal. Let me remind our listeners we're on Pro Advocate Radio. This is Deb Beecham, founder and director of My Advocate Center, and we're here with Jennifer Thomas of the Commission on Family Violence and Jan Christensen, the director of the Georgia Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and our director of um, client services, Jennifer Waddell. So thank you, ladies, for being here. And um, I'd like to say we have the room balanced out with men. James O'Brien's not with us today, um, but he sends his regards. And um, you'll meet James um, probably in one of the next shows. And he's a manly man. He is a protector. He's a grandfather. He's been a coach. And he can get pretty passionate. So if he were in here, he'd probably be pounding the desk a little bit. Um, so let's talk about some of the programs um, that we have in Georgia, and I'll let either one of you. Can I, I want to first, uh, talking about programs, I wanna, you were talking about sort of uh, when you were mentioning the different systems that, that respond or, 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 or support victims. Uh, one of the programs that we have at the Commission on Family Violence is we support family violence task forces around the state. And what those task forces are are coordinated community responses to domestic violence. Um, again, in our fatality review report, uh, we have found that um, prior, five years prior to their homicide, the most uh, often used system was law enforcement. Um, at 79% of the homicides that we uh, have reviewed, 79% of those victims had at some point five years prior to their death reached out to law enforcement. 
But those same victims had also uh, reached out to their faith community at over 30%. You mentioned physicians, their private physician. 23% of those victims had reached out to their local or to their private uh, physician. So we know that domestic violence or ending family violence in our state cannot just be on the backs or, or law enforcement ending, right? It can't just be of the domestic violence programs because we know that only 18% of those same victims had ever had any contact with the local domestic violence shelter. So we have to work in a coordinated way with the partners within our community. So I would say to individuals that are listening to us, if you're living in a community and you want to be involved, one way to do so would be uh, either contacting your local domestic violence program or joining your local domestic violence task force and see how you can fit in, how can you support the systems that are responding. There are already um, functioning task forces uh, throughout the state, and people can get a list of those on our website, which is um, gcfv.org. And so you can take a look and see what task forces are happening and, and the work that's being done all across the state in a coordinated community way. GCFV.org. Yes. Um, okay. So we're going to post that on Twitter and ask everyone to go ahead and take a look at the websites. Um, GCVF.org and GCFV Family Violence. GCFV.org. Mm-hmm. Okay. So go ahead and take a look at the website and. Um, we really encourage our audience to send in your questions and to find the task forces. If you want to feel good about making a difference, that's where you go. Um. Yes. So um, on our website, on the coalition website, uh, gcadv.org, are a list of all of the domestic violence programs in the state. And so you can get information on how to contact one of them. Uh, as Jennifer mentioned, the um, one of the great ways to get involved is to volunteer for your local domestic violence program. It is, um, you know, you can give back in a number of ways. You can work with women. You can work with children. Um, you can work with pets. Many of the domestic violence programs um, accept pets in some way or have accommodations for pets with local um, vets or um, you know, local shelters. And so um, you can work with, uh, you know, help with support groups. You can work in the front office if you don't want to work directly with victims, if you have some kind of office skills. So contacting your local domestic violence programs, they need volunteers really, really badly. And it is kind of, you know, how they get the work done a lot of times. Yeah, volunteers are key. And you said it's GCAV. GCADV. So Georgia Coalition Against Domestic Domestic Violence, Violence. yes. And so, um, so yes, reach out to one of your uh, local programs and and get involved that way. They really, really need volunteers. Absolutely. And how about fundraising? Do you have campaigns throughout the year or do you depend on, you have members, right, who pay dues? Yes, and then what about fundraising? So we actually had a fundraiser yesterday. That's Jennifer right. uh, yes. attended. And um, it was at the Atlanta Women's Club, um, the Wimbish House. And it was a stand luncheon. And um, it was our first such luncheon. And uh, it was it was really great. And so we'll have another luncheon annually. And in the spring, on Mother's Day weekend, we have a race at Piedmont Park. And oh, it's the Race for Empowerment. That's a great event. It is a great yeah. event. And so uh, we have a spring event and then one during domestic. Domestic Violence Awareness Month. The one during Mother's Day weekend is is obviously to um, honor mothers and children and other survivors who have um, survived domestic violence and also those who have lost their lives. So um, it, they're both great events. And, um, you know, you can always donate to the coalition or one of your local programs uh, via our website. Um, and uh, so, so yeah, we, we, we fundraise throughout the year. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think I'm going to do a little shout-out real quick to um, Shalom Bayit at the Jewish Community Center. Yes. And um, so if you're here in the maybe in the North Atlanta area and you're looking for a group that you can feel safe with, that's a great place to go. Yes. And, I mean, the YWCA, um, you know, Holly's not with us today, but um, say hi, Holly. Um, Holly's wonderful. I met her at the Capitol and have attended a couple of events and these these people are just so effective at what they do they're professional they're um 
the empathy is there, you know, but they're strong. You know, this is, we're not looking to just vent and stay standing in one place. We want to move forward. And so the support is fantastic. Um, just a great dynamic with that group. And um, so what I was going to say, the YWCA has great counselors as well and good programs, and we have more of that on our website. Um, so what's next for domestic violence advocates? Do we have um, a specific agenda for this coming legislative session? Uh, we are working on that agenda right now. We don't have anything set in stone. We've been very successful the last couple of years in partnering with, um, you know, the co uh, the commission and, and the coalition partnering together to um, get some really wonderful legislation passed. Um, we uh, I'm going to let Jennifer talk a little bit about it because she worked with our director of public policy directly down at the Capitol. Sure, I'll, I'll just speak briefly about last legislative session. There were a couple of of, of pieces of legislation that we partnered with. Um, the coalition and other uh, groups. One that I'm really very proud of is that now victims of domestic violence are eligible for unemployment benefits if domestic if it's unsafe for them to return to their place of employment because their offender or perpetrator is stalking them at work or it's no longer safe for them to go to work. Um, economic abuse is what traps a lot of victims of domestic violence in their relationship. It's a huge barrier to safety for so many victims. So we see this piece of legislation as being a, a, a piece of, of legislation that will, in some ways, open some doors uh, and allow victims to be able to, to stay safe and to have the economic stability that they need for themselves and their children. So that was one uh, piece of legislation that we were really proud of uh, last legislative session. I also I want to speak about a piece of legislation that, we, that was two years ago. Um, we were able to uh, work collectively with a group of folks across the state and other state agencies um, to pass a strangulation as a felony offense here in the state of Georgia. Uh, we uh, are now pleased to report that you know if if someone is strangled by their partner, that's treated as the crime for which it is a felony assault, not a misdemeanor. Right. So that uh, legislation we we believe will save lives. Um, if an individual has been strangled by their partner, they're seven times more likely to die at the hands of that individual, and not by strangling, but most often by the use of a firearm. So this is homicide prevention work that we're doing. Um, this legislation uh, we believe will save lives in Georgia and, and that's the type of legislation that we get excited about and that we work really hard on at the Capitol um, and, and work with our legislators to help them understand the importance of, of issues such as that. Yeah, that's critical. I'm so glad to hear that and it's it reminds me of the conversation we had with our child trafficking experts who were in. Now that we know, <laughs> we, we have the ability to curb and stop this conduct and um, and I think that the, the notion of someone putting their hands around your neck is, it's chilling, but it happens a lot. It's an easy thing for an abusive person, especially if there's alcohol involved and they've, or any kind of, any kind of substance where they've, you know, just their anger's off the charts and they've lost their ability to hold back. You know, they go too far. And whatever, whatever is going on, there's no excuse. There is no excuse for putting your hands on somebody and inflicting pain and using that, any kind of restraint to hold somebody against their will. So um, that's critical policy work. Thank you. We also know that with strangulation cases, I'll just note that half of, of the individuals who've been strangled, if a law enforcement officer responds to the scene, um, the victim may not have physical injuries. That victim may not, you may not be able to see the bruising or, or you may not be able to see that this victim has injuries. Actually, the perpetrator might be the one that has visible injuries. Um, and those are defensive wounds, um, scratches on their hands. Um, the victim may actually have scratches on her on her neck where she's trying to free, uh, you know, free herself or get his hands from her. So we work really closely with law enforcement and have developed some training tools for them to recognize what is a defensive injury and what is an offensive injury so that we can make sure we're not arresting the victim right. or arresting both parties because they both have injuries. Um, so just because we pass legislation doesn't mean that we're done. 
Right. We have to continue working to implement the, the legislation that we pass, and we're continuing to do that with the strangulation assault um, legislation that was passed a couple and years ago. how is law enforcement responding so far with the training and the policy changes? Sure. I've had the opportunity to train law enforcement um, for the past three years. I travel the state and conduct training for law enforcement. And they want this information. They want to be able to to serve victims better. Um, You know, their frustration oftentimes is that they go back and forth to the same house many times. And and I, you know, validate them and say, you know, it takes a victim sometimes five to seven times to be able to leave that relationship for good. And when I was working in shelter, that was hard for me at times to work with the victim, knowing that if she went back that that might be danger for her. But what I learned from listening to the voices of victims of domestic violence was that every time that victim left that relationship, she was gaining new skills to be more successful for the next time that she left. And so I try to just talk to law enforcement and help them understand that, you know, this time might be the last time you go to that house, right? Because she may be able to leave that relationship for good. And he might be held accountable this time, right, right? that allows her to be able to leave that relationship. So they want this information. They're open to this information. And they want to be able to provide support to survivors. They they want to make a difference. And that's, you know, there's, um, there's people in every industry who have a bad day, maybe don't like their job, they've got problems at home, financial issues. So if you're dealing with a law enforcement officer who seems to lack empathy, he seems indifferent, don't take it personally. It may just not be his day to show in his eyes that he cares, but from talking with law enforcement, they do care, they want to make a difference, they want to be outstanding at their job. They did the training and they have the badge because they care. It's not just a job. So if you're, if you're engaging with law enforcement asking for help, give them the benefit of the doubt that if you, you know, stick out your hand and say, lead me where I need to go, to the shelter, to the counselor, you know, I will trust you you know, law enforcement officer or victim advocate at the court, I will trust you to show me the path and they will do their job and they will help you. Um, I've seen a lot of people come out of courthouses or out of, um, you know, where they went to make a report and they came out kind of with the attitude that, oh, they're not going to help me. They don't really care. You know what? They're just calmer than you are. (laughs) So um, I encourage you to Go online where you feel it's safe. Um, If you're struggling right now to understand what's happening to you, if you're not sure about your home computer being safe, go to the library. Go, you know, just ask somebody. Use somebody else's computer. The information is easy to find online. You can Google domestic violence and put in the town where you live or the county Mm -hmm. and you'll get connected with a shelter a task force you'll see the hotline number and let's go ahead and read the hotline number out again sure it is 1-800-33-HAVEN and so that's 1-800-334-2836 and it's um it, it can be a lifeline to just somebody to listen if you're not ready to leave and so there's, there's help available. There's a caring ear at the other end of the phone. Please call the hotline if you have any questions or just want to talk to somebody. Fantastic. And if you're listening to the show, thank you. And if you're not a victim, if you're not struggling, you just don't need to understand that role, ask what else you can do to help keep those hotlines going and for us to have more staff at the shelters and more beds. So I'm going to um, change course a little bit and remind our listeners that you're on Pro Advocate Radio and we're actually in the Buckhead studio for the Pro Business Channel. Hi Rich Casanova, how are you today? Doing well, just uh, taking some notes here. It's very, uh, actually we do a lot of social media and uh, we're live on uh, several networks here as well as the Pro Business uh, Channel obviously but there's been a lot of activity. I've been uh, capturing y'all's uh, um, Twitter handles and uh, .org sites. Put that on the uh, um, Pro Advocate Radio uh, Twitter handle as well. So lots of activity. Fantastic. Great. Well, they, these guys do a great job here. So I wanted to just say thanks here to our production studio and thanks to Jennifer Waddell for being here. So I know Jennifer has a lot to say on these issues. I'm going to give her a chance in just a minute. So um, I'm going to 
check in with um, something that's really important to me is, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons people get divorced. Sometimes it's violence, addiction, a mental health. Sometimes people just want to be away from each other. I'm going to take a step back from the first responders and the more extreme situations and talk about resolving conflict. There are situations where people need to learn how to fight fair. They need to learn how to say what they need, learn about boundaries, and not every fight needs to lead to violence. Not every fight needs to lead to a divorce or lead to a divorce. Um, seek out counseling. We have some of the best health care and psychological help available you know, here in Georgia and just really around the United States. We have great health care practitioners. If you ask for help, you can get guided to the right person for your situation. And that the type of counseling I'm talking about is different from family violence. It's different from the coercive control. Some people think that just because they fight and they raise their voices, that that's what we're talking about. Not necessarily. If you have um, financial disagreements, those can escalate. Find a financial advisor. Go through myadvocatecenter.com and let us know, you know, we've got a big fight going on, but it may be if we had the right financial help, we could diffuse the situation, reduce the conflict, and get back to co-parenting, get back to our relationship. Um, so we're not encouraging divorce. You know, we want family stability. We want children to have their, you know, both of their parents, and we want them to have the best of both of their parents. The problem is when you've got a parent who's violent, mean, um, addicted, out of control, and taking it out on his or her partner, the children can't have the best of either parent in that situation. So that's where the domestic violence counselors come in because if you, if you go to, say, Shalom Bayit here in North Atlanta, and you say, this is what I'm dealing with, is you know, is there a way to deal with this, or is it so off the charts unhealthy that I just need to take care of myself? And so I think a lot of times victims think they have to make up their own mind, and you do, but you can get help filtering out, you know, what's, what's really severe, you know, what can be managed. Um, so that's another area. Just, you know, I believe in counseling and seeing what can be done. But if we're talking about a bad situation and somebody who's just not going to change, um, you know, I, I, and I heard a pastor say to somebody, I'm not trying to say that I'm God. I'm not going to play God here. But I believe this is one of those situations that God would say divorce is okay. You know, you, nobody deserves, nobody is being forced to stay somewhere where they're being mistreated. So that's my position. That's, I come from a faith-based Christian background, and, but that doesn't dictate faith, does not dictate your worth, and if anything, your faith should support your value and your worth as a human being. And so, so I'm going to get into it with some people over faith because they're so anti-divorce or, you know, anti-abortion that, you know, you run into both sides. You know, we, I can get a little political and sticky in this sometimes, so pull me back. Um, <laughs> but safety comes first. Mental health comes first. Being able to parent your children comes first. Being able to provide a stable, safe environment for your children comes first. So um, I say back to this pastor in this situation, I'm going to give this little example because this is kind of a local Atlanta area case. Um, the mother, um, I don't know if you remember the Christophat case. So that was right in my own backyard. Um, we were neighbors. We went to the same church. Um, she, from all I could tell, took the right steps. She asked for help. The church helped her. And nobody said, you need to stay with this man for the sake of your children. They didn't do that. They helped her financially to get out of that situation. She went to court, and she got restraining orders. And she used the court process. Um, this is hard for me to say, but I'm going to say it because I think people need to hear it. She followed the process. 
she used what the court made available to her. Um, he was jailed. Um, unfortunately, and this is where sometimes we have breakdowns in the system, which is where we focus at My Advocate Center. I'll, I'm going to toss the My Advocate Center hat over to Jennifer. When the system fails, when somebody's doing everything they can, you know, that's something we have to call attention to, which is going to bring me around to the domestic violence bench book. In that case, the father put in writing that he was going to kill the mother. He went after her with a knife in a public parking lot. So there was every indication that he was going to follow through and that he was not worried about consequences. He had been sent away to a mental, he had been in a mental institution, so it was known that he was unstable. And I know a lot more than we've seen in the newspapers because I went and pulled the court records. And he had a five-year sentence, but he was let out after seven months. And he unfortunately, sadly, um, went and followed through on his commitment to take her life. And I believe at least one of their sons was home. This is an awful story. This is as, um, as dark as I'm going to be on this show today. But f the fatality review is not about numbers. It's not about a report. It's about real lives that if we're all aware and we're all doing what we can, we can prevent more fatalities. And we're gonna, we can prevent more deaths, which means these children lost both of their parents. And so it's something we need to take seriously. And um, I remember seeing her at church, and I knew something was off. And I hadn't been close to her at that time. And, you know, everybody's rushing around trying to get their kids at church. And, but I just, I knew. I knew, and I, I, it, I grieved for so long that I didn't stop that day and say, what do you need? You know, I know we haven't spoken in a while because I moved away and came back. Um, so I'm thankful that the church was there for her. I'm thankful that people did rally around her. Um, I'm thankful that her family, you know, is able to take care of the boys. I'm thankful that the man who took her life was captured and jailed. He was indicted, and he's away for a long time. Um, so I'm, I'm sorry to share this very sad story, but it just it brings home when you're reading things like the domestic violence bench book and the fatality report, think this is something we have to keep the conversation going about this. So this is why um, we have Pro Advocate Radio, and I'm glad that we were able to have you on here today. And I know we're going to have to come back um, and get into some other, I mean, there's some, with teen violence, there's so much to talk about. Um, so the domestic violence um, bench book, can you tell us what that is and where you can find it? Sure. Um, the domestic violence bench book, uh, the uh, Commission on Family Violence, we support uh, financially uh, the updates for that each year. It's actually uh, a, a resource and a tool that is um, produced by ICJE, the Institute of Continuing Judicial Education. So you can find a link to that from our website, or you can um, Google ICJE or look up the Domestic Violence Bench Book for the state of Georgia. Um, the newest edition of that will be released prior to the end of this year. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so okay. we, we work each year uh, to update, uh, to add new legislation that's been passed, to upgrade or expand on some areas. Uh, last year we expanded the area around sort of teens and violence and teen relationships. And so uh, we, we, just, we provide the financial support for that addition upgrade each year. But that's a, a tool and a resource that's uh, managed and housed through ICJE. And I would just say that that bench book is a great resource for judges, but it's also a great resource for advocates and for individuals who may be going through uh, the court process. If, you, um, if you're leaving a situation and you want to see how the court is supposed to respond, whether it's mediation, I mean, people are really being guided into mediation, and mediation is a fantastic tool and process. I highly advise mediation over litigation. However, 
read the domestic events, the, the bench book and see what it says about mediation when there's family violence involved. Um, I'm going to say specifically to attorneys, to financial advisors, to anyone helping parents um, look at, you know, dividing up financial assets, putting parenting plans together, critical that you get a copy of this and go through and highlight the sections and keep them in your briefcase. And when you're in court and somebody is trying to guide you into a parenting plan that's not going to work, you know, let's say nothing terrible has happened in the family. There's been no arrest, but all the signs are there. The bench book is a fantastic resource. So um, that's something I'd like to see it at every courthouse <laughs> featured front and center. Um, and so definitely more training for judges and attorneys and child custody experts, um, for example. Jennifer, what about you? Have you read the, the bench book? Uh, no, I haven't. But speaking of the training of our judicial system, I wanted to ask about um, the judges um, that most a lot of our judges who are do family court or family kind of cases, divorces and custody matters, typically don't come from a family law background, whether they were practicing law before, it was either criminal defense or criminal offense or uh, related to uh, financial matters or real estate. And they come into court and they do criminal, civil, they do all the family law stuff, but they don't have any background or training. So I was very interested in, in learning about what are we doing about educating our judges on the severity of family law um, and this domestic violence, um, I'm sorry, family violence and domestic violence, and how they can recognize that it's going on in a particular case. So I, I can answer that uh, uh, some of it. I mean, the bench book is one way that they can educate themselves. And then each class of judges will have conferences throughout the year, um, superior court, magistrate. They'll each have conferences. And um, at those conferences, uh, we have in the past hosted a family violence um, sort of track uh, that, that judges can come into and elect to take those workshops that are part of their conference. Um, so that's one way. I know that the bench book, there's a, a webinar that's available for, for um, judges to view that's on ICJE website. That's, that must be fairly new. I, mean, I, I think it was posted last year. Okay. Uh, so that... Uh, uh, the individual who updates the bench book uh, provided a webinar for judges on uh, on the bench book. So, uh, again, one way that judges can get trained is through um, at attending their conferences that are here in the state um, to be able to um, uh, tracks that they can elect to go to. And I noticed the National Council on Juvenile and Family Court Judges is another great resource and tool for judges that um, they hold national conferences uh, but we have in the past had judges who have attended that national conference as well to uh, enhance their knowledge about this type of crime. That's great. Good resource. Uh, I have one more question. Um, do you feel or have you experienced some victims that have come to you for, for help um, that they have or they've uh, hesitated on reaching out because they're afraid of what the uh, abuser will do in, re in retaliation for reaching out, um, whether it's filing for a full custody, which that seems to be very common these days. Um, just wondering if you've had any experience with that. Of course. Um, you know, abusers don't want the victim reaching out for help, obviously. And so um, many times that there are threats to the victim, if you tell anybody about this, there will be consequences, uh, whatever that may be. I'll take the children and leave. Um, I'll hurt you. I'll hurt the children. I'll harm the pet. Uh, you know, so there's, there's all kinds of threats. And, um, and, and so, yes, many victims fear the abuser will find out and what will happen when that abuser finds out. And so confidentiality is key. Um, you know, we, we um, worked a few years ago to pass the privilege communication legislation here in Georgia, which means that um, communication between um, a domestic violence advocate and a victim is considered privileged communication, much like um, uh, communication between a, attorney, client, um, uh, uh, faith leaders, those kinds of things. So, um, so confidentiality is key, and victims need to know that when they reach out and talk to a domestic violence advocate, that those communications are considered privileged. Excellent. Can I just, I want to follow up on that, Jennifer, just a little bit. Um, you know, one thing that, that we see, and I've talked with victims about, is um, 
that the perpetrator will just bog her down in, in the legal process. Mm -hmm. And many times the, the perpetrator is the one who has access to all the financial resources. And so bogging her down in the legal process, you know, um, she has to then uh, get an attorney. Many times she may have to pay for that attorney. And so that's another form of economic mm -hmm. abuse and trapping her and keeping her in that relationship is abusing her through the legal system. And so that's another uh, area that, that individuals should reach out to their local domestic violence program for support and assistance uh, around that as well. I just want to say that, that you, you can reach out for support and assistance from the domestic violence program. That doesn't mean you have to live in the shelter. Right. You don't have to move into the shelter to receive those services. Most services that are provided by local domestic violence programs are not shelter services. They are services for individuals who are safe to live in the community, safe to live outside of the shelter and receive support. So you don't have to move into the shelter to receive that support, and I think that's oftentimes a misconception by victims of domestic violence, and I just want to point that out. I also want to point out, to, to piggyback on what Jennifer just said, is that um, victims don't need to be out of their relationship in order to receive help. Many victims don't want to leave the relationship, know that the barriers that they'll face if they leave the relationship, um, that they won't have access to any money, that they may have to live in substandard or, or housing or live in unsafe communities, and that what they really want is for the violence to stop in their relationship, and they want to be able to remain safe in their current home with their, their partner. Um, and so what we need to understand is that we need to be able to talk to victims about ways to remain safe in their own home. And victims oftentimes will start that conversation by saying, I want help for my husband. I want help for my partner. And um, we need to be open to hearing those questions and to being able to provide some kind of um, conversation around that. And, um, you know, what does safety look like for a victim in her own home? If, if, if the reality is that she can't leave, so, so we need to be able to hear those conversations and, and have those conversations in a real way and provide resources. And the resource that I would like to highlight for, for, for individuals who are, may be perpetrating domestic violence against their partner, and they're aware of that, and they would like to reach out and find assistance and support for them to stop that behavior. Um, our office, we certify and monitor the family violence intervention programs here in our state. And again, on our website, which is gcfv.org, you can find a complete listing for the batters intervention programs here in our state. There are 106 programs located all over the state of Georgia. It's a 24-week program that's um, used to sort of address abusive behaviors and get at the root of why do you think you have the right to have power and control over your partner and how can you work for a relationship that at its core is based on equality and not power and control. So um, we've really highlighted a lot of resources for victims, but if, if you're perpetrating violence or you, you feel as though there's some behaviors that you want to get addressed, um, there are resources available and those programs offered are offered for male and female individuals That's right. I as saw well. they have separate programs for women who yes. have problems controlling their emotions and turn violent, whether it's against their partner or their children or against themselves. You know, there's, you know, some people can't take it out on somebody else, but they can take it out on themselves, whether it's through drinking, violence. There are, so there are separate programs for men and women. Um, I know Men Stopping Violence um, here in the Decatur area does a great job. And I've actually been in the courtroom and heard the judge address violence with an offender and talk about the program. But watching, watching that man's face, almost a sense of relief coming over him that he has a way to turn this around. And that, I mean, it almost made me cry because I thought, you know what, maybe there's hope. Because that's a big question I have is, you know, once somebody's become violent and that controlling, can they turn it around? So, you know, I'd like to see people um, recovered so they can have their lives back, whether they're an offender or a victim. Um, and it, it certainly can't feel good, you know, mentally, emotionally to do that to someone. So um, please reach out to the Georgia Commission, go to the website, and I also linked the, um, the violence intervention programs to proadvocateradio.com. Those are so important. Thank you. So um, 
if somebody comes to you and says, I'm just angry all the time, and somebody told me I do need to do an anger management pro program, how does that compare to the the violence intervention program? That's a great, great question. So uh, I get that when I do trainings, right? And, and folks will ask that question. And I, I saw, the way I distinguish the difference in that is if someone is angry, um, they might take it out on the cashier at the grocery store uh, for doing something they didn't like, right? The difference between someone who's angry and does that and someone who goes home and physically assaults their partner, they have control over that behavior. So I, I, I think that uh, we don't, batters often have the best uh, anger management, right? They can manage that anger. They can control that behavior because they don't do it until they get home with their intimate partner behind closed doors most often. Out of sight. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're managing that behavior. They're controlling that behavior. Um, anger management is not a state-certified program. Um, it's not a program that we recommend someone who is experiencing uh, you know, uh, per perpetrating violence against their partner, they need to be held accountable for that behavior and, and to, to sort of understand, again, it gets at the root of why do you believe it's okay for you to have power and control over your partner? So it's at the base about power and control, whereas anger management is they're just uh, angry at everyone and they don't have a specific victim that they're targeting. Okay. All right. Okay. That's yeah. very helpful. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. You know, what Jennifer said is that, you, you know, somebody's angry, they go out and they're, they're mad at their boss, they, they take it out on their boss or their coworkers or, you know, in traffic, um, you know, batterers pick their families. They abuse their families behind closed doors where no one else can see. They have control over the situation, and it is not about anger management. So when that's going on, do you think the person who's perpetrating the violence, the control, you know, whether it's emotional abuse, economic abuse, are they thinking about the impact on the children? I think that they're they're thinking about the impact on um, their family as a whole in that they want to control their family. Um, and so they're not thinking about, um, you know, whether children grow up to be batterers. I don't think they're thinking about that. I think, and this is my personal opinion, that I think batterers are narcissistic, and I believe that they feel like they have a right to have power and control over their loved ones. More like... Um a piece of property, absolutely something that can be controlled or traded. So, yes. okay, used to meet their 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 own needs. Right. Okay. Well, I'm gonna let Jennifer jump in because I'm sitting with that. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to point out a, a really uh, a great social experiment that was done on domestic violence, and it's a, it's very good in relation to it being you know e equal between females and males. Um, that equal, uh, it's not just about women being abused. Um, it is, um, the Facebook name is Disturb Reality. And if you go to that Facebook page, that's the name of it. And you can look at this video that is on a social experiment that was done. And it's very interesting. And I recommend everybody take a look at it. It's a very good, good experiment. So yeah, we'll I, have, I haven't seen that. No. Um, I'll take a look at it and see. But I'll, I'll just sort of, I want to just emphasize on that, that, you know, yes, men can be victims of domestic violence, and I think it's important that we point out that they're uh, victims of violence from their female partners, but also from their male partners. So domestic violence happens within the gay and lesbian, transgender, bisexual community at the same rates as it happens within heterosexual same-sex communities as well. So when we talk about, uh, you know, men being victims of domestic violence, that I, I want us to sort of think a bit more broadly that it's not just by female partners, but it could also be by their male partners and the same for women being victims could be from their female partner as well um, Jan you were going to say yes and so um, I, I think we need to be careful about reading too much into those kinds of studies when we really look at the root of um, domestic violence and, and violence against women the root of that is is in patriarchy and that you have to have power in a situation in order to be the abuser and most times it is the male who has the power in the situation of, of course women can be violent but many times and, and I would venture to say most times it is not about domestic violence it's not about power and control um, Domestic violence is about power and control, and we have to remember that's rooted in patriarchy. Right, and this experiment does focus on uh, what people do on lookers, and it goes to support our monthly uh, Domestic Violence Awareness Month, 
and it shows the difference between onlookers, whether it's a male or a female, instigating the abuse. Oh. And it's very interesting because there's a big difference between the female doing it and the male doing it and what the onlookers do about it. Wow. Okay. I'll Great. check that out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, thank you for being here on Get Radio today. And we're going to remind our listeners one last time, your website, Jan www.gcadv.org and I just want to mention the hotline again 1-800-33-HAVEN Great, and Jennifer Thomas, thank you very much and your website? Sure, thank you for having us. Uh, Our website is gcfv.org Great, so visit the websites, check out the events look at the volunteer opportunities please donate and keep learning and let's keep the conversation going. Thank you all. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you again for joining Deb Beecham and her guests on the Pro Business Channel. Use the social media links here to share today's show and stay tuned for the next episode of Pro Advocate Radio, brought to you by My Advocate Center, the voice for families and family law advocates. Learn more at myadvocatecenter.com. To women who hoped to evade the ticking clock of time, Dr. Frederick Brandt was the most potent drug dealer in the world. And the dealer got high on his own supply. From Imperative Entertainment and the team behind Broken Hearts comes a new series that will challenge everything you know about fame, fortune, and the fear of growing old. I'm Justine Harmon, and this is The Baron of Botox. Celebrate the big 2020 with T-Mobile. Switch now and get two lines for just 90 bucks and two new iPhone 11s on us. So you can take a portrait built for two with the ultra-wide camera. Oh, that's a good one. Oh, cute. Hurry in to T-Mobile and get two lines for 90 bucks and two iPhone 11s on us with qualifying trade-ins. Via 24 credits for well-qualified buyers with auto pay, plus taxes and fees. If you cancel before receiving 24 credits, you may owe up to the full value of your device of $699.99. Contact us. Qualifying port-ins and finance agreements required.